0: There have been a lot of great hockey players over the years, legends,
1: both on and off the ice. The Overtime Podcast checks in with some of hockey's biggest names and talks about what these great players are up to today. Welcome to the Overtime Podcast. Here's your host,
0: Gino Retta. Hey, hockey fans, welcome to the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. You know, I spent four decades or more working the game of hockey, fortunate enough to meet some of the great legends of the game, saw them come into the league, watched them shine in the game, and now they've moved on to life after the game. The 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast gives us a chance to catch up, tell some great stories, relive some great memories, and hear what they're up to today. Today's legend, uh, first overall pick back in 2002, six-time NHL All-Star, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and now he's the director of player development for the Columbus Blue Jackets. He's Rick Nash. Rick, great to have you here, my friend. I'm looking forward
2: to catching up with you. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's always nice to see a familiar face. And, you know, me me being here in Columbus, I don't get to see you guys uh, too much. But uh, you're a legend yourself, and I'm happy to uh, spend this time with you. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to
1: crush the crave. Download the 7Now Delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large, hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, Groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7. Full disclosure,
0: Rick and I have known each other for many, many years. I knew you before uh, you even were drafted. So you and I have had a relationship for many years and uh, I've seen so much. And you're you're the epitome of uh, one of these great stories where I've been so happy to watch a guy come up through minor hockey, uh, have tremendous stature in your career and accomplish what you've done. Do you sometimes stop yourself and say, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I still got this Blue Jackets logo on me, director of player development for an NHL organization right now. Are these things, things that you even would have imagined as a kid growing up playing the game?
2: No, not, not at all. Do you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, you, you think about where, where we've grown up and, and where you live now and, you think about how many kids play hockey and how many families are kind of involved in the minor hockey and, and how many kids dream is to make the NHL. And and when you start going through the numbers and seeing how many kids actually make it and, and have successful careers, it's, um it, it's not too many. So I, I consider myself very lucky, you know, as a, a kid from Brampton that just had a huge dream and, you know, going to play in the MTHL and GTHL and, you know kind of following it and, and you never know when it when it's actually real and then you you know you go off to junior and you start seeing yourself on some of these uh scouting lists and these red line reports and and then it hits, and you and you, and you get drafted. But um, the one thing I can say is, is I cannot believe how fast it went. I mean, I, I remember yeah. going to George Bell Arena like it was yesterday for Friday night uh, Marley games, um, and, and now I'm sitting here, uh, you know, four years out of my career, <laughs> trying to uh, work my way up the, uh, you know, the, the the hockey ops situation, and it's it's just crazy. But I, I, I find myself fortunate. Uh, every single day that I get to wear the Blue Jacket logo and come to work and, and try to uh, bring a Stanley Cup to Columbus. We're going to get to your current a minute, but I do want to talk to you about the
0: hockey ops thing, just on the heels of something, uh, the commissioner, Gary Bettman. The poor guys try trying to campaign all over the league right now, saying there's no such thing as tanking. Nobody tanks. No, like It just is not a real thing. Your Blue Jackets right now, the Hawks, the Ducks, uh, to some extent, the Montreal Canadians guys who are cleaning house right now, because everybody's watching the last time the jackets had a first overall pick was you <laughs> and nobody since then. And now they're in a very real battle potentially for a Conor Bedard first overall. We've seen, and we'll talk about the, the way you became the face of an organization, the face of a franchise, really the face of a region in hockey with what you're able to accomplish and what you're able to do. What's the hockey market like in Columbus right now? What are they talking about locally? Are they saying, guys, let's just tank Connor Bedard's out there for us? What's the chatter right now?
2: Well, it's interesting because I think you know this better than anyone, um, and and I'm sure we'll get into it later, but Columbus has never had a first overall pick. Columbus traded up for... uh, They
0: got it, yeah. Look at (laughs) the smile
2: on your face. Yeah, that's a great story. We'll tell that story. Yeah, so interestingly, Columbus has never... Uh, ha- has been awarded a first overall pick yeah. from uh, from the start of the lottery or, or whatever you want to call it, but uh, you know what? With with that being in the news the last few days, um, I'm kind of at a, a uh, an interesting stance on it because I, I can still see it from a player standpoint. I can see it now from a management standpoint, and I can only speak for um, for myself and and obviously our organization. But I couldn't imagine management coming down to the room and, and asking guys to tank. Or uh no, you know, but Rick, that's not what you got,
0: and that's not what management does though, right? Managing
2: just and, and rightfully so.
0: You're saying what's best for our organization. And if what's best for our organization right now is to not necessarily give yourself the best chance to win short term, that's okay, is it
2: not? Yeah, but I think I think you're on I think I think it's on a fine line right here. And and um, you know, th- there's no question, would would the first overall pick help the organization? Yeah, a hundred percent. There is there is no question whatsoever. There's been some great fifth overalls and si- or uh, fifth round and sixth round picks that have been organization uh, changing too. But you know, there's no question that if if you get the first overall pick, it's going to be a big deal for your city, for your organization. Um, you know, it, it could help out in a long, long run uh, of your team being a good team. O- on the tanking purpose, I, I just I just can't can't see it and I can't think of players coming to the rink every day and uh, and I know that's not what you're saying but at the same time that's what the uh, the news is and and I, I just I, I can't see it but in saying that if you're uh, in a hockey up situation and you have this great draft with uh you know generational players um you know th- there's no question you, you would want that first overall pick but um, you you have to be very careful with your fans with your season ticket holders. Yeah um on on how you get there and and at the same time you no know, these guys are going to battle every single night and playing these games like our team had a great game in, in Edmonton last night with a with a big overtime win but um I think the NHL is in a in a, in a tough position with um the all the headlines that uh, that you mentioned but uh that's a really tough thing to uh, to see from the inside
0: yeah, but you know what, though? In fairness, you're and I understand what you're saying, that you're you're trying to respect your fan base. But sometimes your fan base is saying this is what we want. I mean, nowhere is that more obvious right now than it is in Vancouver, where the Vancouver fan base is saying we don't want to retool. We want to rebuild. Let's let's get this thing fixed. Let's get this thing turned around. Let's not be afraid of, you know, Canuck fans are thinking, look, Bedard's from here. It'd be great to have the the lineup. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there, but what is important and you kind of alluded to this. And I want to get onto this now is sometimes when an organization says, this is a guy we desperately need and they go out and do what they, they desperately needed. Doug McLean was a general manager of the blue jackets back when, when you were, everybody was saying you were going to be the first overall pick, but the jackets only had third overall pick walk. Those who maybe don't recall through what happened there on draft day, literally on the draft floor.
2: Yeah, it's it really is a, a cool story. Um, and just at my uh, Jersey retirement last year in March, uh, Doug McClain came in and uh, spoke at the uh, the Jersey retirement. And it's funny how my version and his version are, are so different. But uh, I think we all know Doug in, in the hockey world. And um,
0: Doug, by the way, for those of you who don't know him, Doug's a legend of the game, was management for years and years, a great guy from PEI, wonderful, wonderful heart, and just retired just a couple of years ago.
2: I think that the coolest thing about it is that every time I tell the story is that you you know, are the key component of this, of this whole story. And it started the night before the draft and I had my, I final didn't know
0: you were going to give the me part away. I thought you were just going to deal with the other part of it.
2: Yeah. And I had my final meetings uh, the night, the night before. And um, I, I was meeting with Columbus. They were my last meeting. And and Doug just expressed how, how bad he wanted me in Columbus. And uh you know, for me and Joe Resnick, we kind of looked at uh, the depth charts of, of the other teams that were before, and it was uh, obviously Florida and Atlanta at the time. And, um, you know, we, we knew uh, Florida kind of had Stephen Weiss in, in, in the, the draft before, and then Atlanta had Heatley and Kovalchuk. And with Columbus, they had Klesla and Leclerc, which was a goalie and a defenseman. So we thought Columbus was the perfect fit too, and, and that's how I kind of expressed it to Doug. And, uh, you know, we, we shook hands and and I told him that I would, I would kind of love to be a blue jacket. And, and he had this look, uh, look on his face and this look on his eye that it seemed like something was going to happen. And, yeah. you know, we, we get to the, uh, the ACC or Scotia Scotiabank, what it's, what it's called now in, in Toronto for the, uh, the draft the next morning. And, you know, I felt like I was sitting there for about two hours before, and it was probably only about 15 minutes. And, um, I'll never forget. There was about ten minutes on the clock before uh, Florida the draft would start, and Florida would make their first pick overall. And sitting there with my mom and dad, and, and here comes you running up the stairs to me, and you uh, you tap me on the leg, and you, you t- I, I remember you telling me, "You're not going to believe this, but Columbus just traded up for the first overall pick." And nothing was announced yet, or uh, or anything. And I don't even know if we had smartphones, or so I don't know how you were working the uh, the phone lines or what you were doing. But um, I cannot reveal my sources. <laughs> yeah, lo and behold, lo and behold, uh, you know, about three minutes, four minutes later, I think Gary Bettman came on and said we have a uh, trade to announce. So it, it's a story that's honestly stuck with me uh, my whole career. How that whole process went down, and and I'm not trying to blow smoke uh, you know, t- towards you, but uh, you were a big part of it.
0: Well, thanks, man. It was a lot of fun. And it was, to me, the, the point of, of the story I was trying to make, and I appreciate how gracious you're, you know, this is how desperately the organization wanted you and how they looked at you as a guy that could re- literally be a game changer. Now, in, in hindsight, we see how you were. We see what you did to that community, what you did in terms of popularizing hockey in a community that really wasn't very popular. And and you've seen a lot of what's come of it and you stepped right in and you like, you honored what they were looking for. And you tell us about your NHL debut, the opening your first game. Now you signed your NHL contract, your entry level deal. Three days later, you're making your NHL debut. Tell the fans about what happened that night.
2: Yeah, you know, you know, what's interesting about coming to a market where, you know, obviously they wanted me and, and I was happy to be here because I thought it was the, uh, the best opportunity and kind of the fast track for me to the NHL. But one of the one of the strange things was was growing up in Toronto. And I mean, I would be lucky. I, I used to get to go to one game a year for my for one of my best friend's birthday parties. And uh, that was it. And It was just me and him. His, uh, his his dad would drop us off at Yorkdale and then we would take the subway. And this yeah. is when we were 10 or 11 years old. Um, down to the game so you know we we would get there early we'd watch warm-up I remember one time I went to a game with my dad and we waited outside that back door uh, at the Maple Leaf Gardens and waiting for an NHLer to come out just to try to meet them and you know it, it never really happened and just to answer your question from earlier then I get to Columbus and there's people at our practices we're talking to them before practice after practice they're waiting outside by the car so you're signing autographs by the car. And it was just, it was so different. That Accessibility, right? Exactly. That, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. and It did take a little while for me to understand that in Toronto and huge hockey markets, you you don't really have to sell the game to the fans. They're going to come no matter what. But in a yeah. fresh market like Columbus, we really had to sell the game and and have those conversations with fans uh, after practice and, you know, outside your car. So it, it was really hard to get used to but um i kind of figured it out fast that to put um put people in the arena and get excited about hockey and grow the minor hockey and, and to see where it is today those were the things that you had to do early on and and people from toronto sometimes find that hard to understand which i did at the start but to go on to my first uh first nhl game it was it was incredible we we uh you know uh, joe resnick and gord kirk we we finally got the contract done um yeah. you know a couple of days before and I remember uh, getting ready to go to warm-up in my uh, in my first NHL game. And I put my helmet on and strapped it up and started to walk out. And Tyler Wright, who uh, who was a legendary Blue Jacket, came over and yeah. looked at me. And he said, why are you putting your helmet on? And I said, well, it's warm-up. He goes, yeah, but you're the first overall pick. He goes, we need our fans to see, we need to see our you. first overall pick. And, That's and, awesome. Uh, so it, it was a story that stuck with me. I went out there for warm-up. I had my whole family there. And And ended up scoring a goal in my first NHL game. And uh, I I still remember walking out of the tunnel and just all these flashbacks of, you know, playing road hockey, uh, playing in gym class, um, just shooting pucks in my garage and in my basement. And it it all just kind of felt real that I I achieved my dream. It was awesome. And, And, of course, obviously, we're back here
0: still tracking everything that you're doing, not only as a broadcaster, but somebody who's really interested in your particular career. And I remember... Uh, it was one of the first years I was hosting that's hockey because I had hosted Sports Center for 20 years, and then I shifted over to that's hockey. Either the year you were drafted, or maybe the year just before, and we would bring on guests onto the show to talk to the you know players and general managers and stuff. And I thought it'd be great to get Nash on the show. Here's a guy we saw him get drafted first overall. You had a pretty solid rookie season. You were a finalist for the Calder, which was awesome. But you were on fire in your sophomore year. You score 41. You you were tied that year. Uh, now, I, I don't want to get this wrong. Remind me, you were tied for the rocket with Aginla and Kovalchuk, right? Right. You guys, all three, you guys had 41. Uh, and you were just 19 years old, which is amazing. So I thought, let's get him on the show. So we call your PR team. We say, we want to get Rick Nash on the show. The PR guy calls me back a day later and says, Nash said he'll do it. It's okay, but why would you want to do an interview with him? Do you remember this story?
2: No. Keep going. No.
0: He says, "Why would you want to?" Do-? I said, "Well, because he's having a great year." And he goes, "Well, apparently you called him super soft." And I went, "What?" I said, "What are you talking about? I never called Nash super soft. A, a I don't believe he is. So why would I call him that?" So I'm having this conversation with my producer at that point, Jeff Mott, And He goes. No, we did a feature on him yesterday calling him, he's having a super sophomore year. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that. I'm like, I said, you could not be further from the truth. And the guy didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, just get Dasher on the air. I'll, I'll explain and We'll tell the story. And we told the story. This was like now 20 years ago, but I had you on the show and it was hilarious. Cause it was the complete opposite of what I was saying. You are a super sophomore, not super soft. <laughs> Do you remember that at all?
2: Now that, now that you say it, it kind of, uh, it kind of hits home, um, the, the whole story and you having the yeah. big ba- breakdown, but, uh, you know, I, I still, I may, maybe the organization was mad at you and didn't catch <laughs> on to it. Uh, it was being, funny being here in Columbus, they couldn't figure it out because I would never see myself turning down a uh, no. interview for for good or bad. But uh, mm-hmm. now that you say the super soft part, I kind, I kind of remember having some sort of discussion. With with our PR team here, but uh, that's that's classic. I can never oh, get mad at you. Or oh, no.
0: but, but what? seriously, how are you going to get me at 41 that season? What was that like to suddenly go, I mean 17 in your rookie season was very solid. To go to 41 with Kovalchuk and Againla, two legendary goal scorers in the league, at that point did you realize, I can do this?
2: Yeah, you know what? I've only I scored 42 once with the Rangers and that was the only time that I scored more goals in that year and I'm telling you, I, I think my my average ice was at like 14 minutes. Um, when I, when I scored 41, I'd have to go back and check. But I'm telling you, you know, everything went in, and mm-hmm. I was I was playing. I believe with David Viborni, who was a really skilled player, and I think it was Andrew Castles or uh, or Mike Sillinger, who's uh, Cole Sillinger's dad now, who yeah. plays the team, but. I, I think Andrew make you castles, feel
0: old when you have to say stuff like that.
2: <laughs> just a little bit. Um, Andrew Kraft castles was from Bramley and, you know, I was from Brampton and we, we lived beside uh, each other here in Columbus and we just kind of created a bond and that, that, that season, everything went in and it's funny. People still come up to me and, and ask me that question and I don't have an answer for them other than it was, it was a lot of luck. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of going to the heart. Area. Nah, sure. Hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You're making it sound like a one-off. Like you did
0: have that 42 year. You had a string of from 0304 where seven of eight years, you were 30 plus goals. You're one of the most prolific goal scorers in the NHL for about a decade. So it wasn't just a one off season. Yeah, the 41 was a big thing, but you were scoring in the 30s year after
2: year after year. Well, yes. And I think, I, I truly think it was, a, it was a different NHL back then too. No, you know, no one was putting up 60 or 65 or 55 every year. It, it felt like it was a lot tougher to score and you had to work a lot harder for your, for your goals. Now I'm not taking anything away. That's from when you.
0: guys could still grab you.
2: Yeah. You could take a water ski right behind you uh, e- easily. Um, but you, you know what, those, those seasons were awesome. And then the 41, when I co-won the Rock Rochard, uh, I, I always went back to if my defensive game was better and I was on the ice at the end of games when we were winning, I maybe I could have added four or five empty netters. And that's the thing that's always impressed me is I didn't have one empty netter. And I think uh, Jerome and Ilya had a few and I wish there was a tiebreaker or something, but
0: uh, that should have been the tiebreaker. No,
2: you just got to, right. okay, let's eliminate empty netters. Yes. And I don't know exactly how many empty netters uh, they had. They, they might not have had any either, but yeah, um, it, it was still, uh, to get to know Jerome over the years, um, it, it was a cool award to share with him that our names will always be in history. But I'm not trying to be overly humble and say it was luck, but I'm telling you, from from someone that loves to score goals, and I will never feel that rush of scoring an NHL goal that I miss so much to this day, everything went in those years that I, I scored over 40 the, the ones that shouldn't have went in went in and, and the ones that should have went in too. So it was, uh, I was, I was just amazed by, um, by that.
0: You mentioned Jerome and uh, right away, 2010 comes to mind. Uh, he had a pretty good run at the Olympics. So did you, <laughs> so the Vancouver, you, you got to play in three different Olympic games. 06 was Oh six, but then golds in 2010 and 2014. Um, I want to ask you specifically about 2010 in Vancouver playing for Olympic gold on home ice, being a proud Canadian uh, that you were at that point. What was that entire experience like for you?
2: Yeah, you know what? It was it was really cool. Um, to start, you know, in 2002, I remember watching uh, Salt Lake City from the training room uh, yeah. in the old ice house in London. Yeah. And... You know, fast forward four years in, in 2006, I felt like they brought a lot of the same guys that they did in 2002. And I was kind of uh, inserted in it as a new wave of uh, Canadian talent. And you know, I didn't play very much, but it was still really cool to be uh, to be around all those guys that were in 2002. And then obviously we didn't have this success and it was, um, you know, not not the best feeling coming back to Canada after uh, getting beat out in the quarters. And then I remember showing up for the, uh, the 2010 training camp and in the summer camp, and then, you know, getting announced to the team and, um, and going in 2010. And, and I remember just everyone saying, talking about the pressure and that was the one thing that stuck but You're out. on home ice. You're on home ice. You finished, what did we have or seventh in the, uh, in the Torino one. Yeah. So I remember, um, You know, the the coaches and the management coming in before and saying we have to downplay this pressure or else it's going to eat at us. So, you know, just go out there and and try to uh, peg that message to the media that, you know, it's not uh, it's not that much pressure. But I'm telling you, the pressure in that room was was crazy how we couldn't have done anything other than a gold medal that the Canadian fan base and true to ourselves that we would would have been happy with. So the, the couple of things that stick out for uh, for that tournament was um, was the, the the game versus Russia. I, I I still think the building was louder that game than it was for the uh, for the gold medal game. Right. Um, just the whole history behind it and, and the way we won that game was incredible. And then the next thing that jumps out was the overtime intermission. Uh, you know, between the end of the third and going into overtime in the yeah. gold medal game we were sitting there and I think we had eight or nine captains um, of their club team in that room. And it was almost like nothing needed to be said. It was, it was pretty quiet in there. You know, a few of the older guys spoke up and and stuck to the basics. But as I tell everyone and I truly felt walking into the dressing room in between that the story was already written. Yeah. You already knew who was going to score the goal. You already knew. And I think I had one time when I was coming down the right wing, I pulled up, um you know i shot at low blocker and and, and miller just made the save but I, yeah. I, I i always told myself i'm like that was never going to go in no matter what the story was already written yeah. that stick would score the golden goal yeah it was it was spectacular
0: i was in the building obviously for the, for that entire tournament and and that game and it was it was like nothing i'd ever seen
1: here are a couple of hot tasty ways to crush the crave Download the 7Now Delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just eleven sixty-nine, order a large, hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, Groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats, 24-7. We're in conversation with two-time Olympic gold
0: medalist, uh, six-time NHL Hockey Hall of Famer, Rick Nash. This is the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Oretta. You you had a, a pretty prolific international career. I mean, I when I, I look back at all the stuff you did, uh, three times at the Olympics, two gold medals, gold, two silver at the Worlds, uh, silver at the World Junior, what was it like to basically, from the start to end of your career, to always be a guy that that Hockey Canada, that Canada was calling on when it came to the international stage? What was that like for you?
2: Yeah, it, it was always an honor. Um, funny enough, uh, me and Scott Salmon um, were just talking about this again because he, he called me. Him and Shane Doan asked me if I wanted to do the uh, AGM job last year at yeah. the. Uh, at the world championships. Yeah. And, and I told Scott, I said, well, I've never said no to you before, yeah. so I'm not going to say no now. So uh, yeah. that, that's come full circle. But for me, growing up as a huge hockey fan in, in Toronto, um, there, there was nothing greater than than representing your country. I am so patriotic. Uh, I love to tell people that I'm Canadian. Um, even though I live in the States, it's yeah. just, I, I love my country. And I'm, I'm happy to put on that Jersey. Um, it's, it's funny now that I'm in, um, that I'm in uh, development is uh, you know, I'll watch my players play for their club team and then I'll go to a world juniors or world championships and, and I'll see them elevate their game. And now, yeah. you know, this is like the tricky thing where. I know. How do you say that to, it was like, can you bring a little of that back here? It, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So it's easy. And and I know personally to elevate your game for seven to nine games yeah. when you're putting on a red and white Jersey or whatever your country uh, country's colors are and the hard thing is is going back after you know these these olympic gold medals or world championships and then playing the same way for your club team at a more consistent basis so it, it, it's a little tricky but it's just funny that we're we're talking about that and it's stuff that i'm going through now but um the gold medals uh, are probably a highlight of my career and playing for hockey canada is a highlight of my career and And every time they came knocking uh, for a world championships or, or whatever it might be, I would, uh, I would always commit to them. And, and they've been a big part of my career. That's
0: awesome. I want to reflect back on some special moments that stand out in my mind. And I would think they stand out in your mind as well. So give me your thoughts on them as we reflect back on them. First, I can't ignore the goal. I'm going to call it the goal against the coyotes back in January of 2008. Um, it was it was such a gorgeous goal. It was the goal of the year in the NHL. As a matter of fact, you were a finalist in the ESPYs for the overall best top four sports plays of that calendar year. Tell our audience about that goal and what your memories were of that.
2: Yeah, I don't want to say one goal can uh, define your career, but um this almost did define my career. This yeah, goal it was is, pretty
0: freaking awesome.
2: <laughs> this goal is almost bigger than bigger than my career, and and to this day, um it it, it truly is kind of the first thing that that anyone wants to talk about is is what happened during that goal and 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 I love it because everything had to go right and uh, about a minute before I scored that goal uh, two minutes before I took a high sticking penalty and uh, the Phoenix Coyotes scored on the power play to uh, to tie up the game and you know I I didn't feel too good about it and, and wanted to try to do something about it um, obviously I didn't think I could do that but it was a, a high flip pass that came out and uh, it was kind of a broken play and I grabbed the puck and there was two defenders and I, I walked both defenders with the exact same move. It was a simple move that me and my old Toronto Marley coach, Keith Kerrigan used to work on was a uh, quick uh, outside in and then back to the outside. And then I went around the goalie and the goalie actually made a great play because he poke checked me and he got the puck and the puck rolled up my shin pad and dropped right there for me to put it in. And it, it was like it was meant to be. And it's, it still sticks with me. And the craziest thing, was after that game we flew right to Dallas and uh, we were I think we were on a back-to-back and um, I remember waking up at about 10 a.m. or whatever it was because we got in late from Phoenix and my phone at the time was was just you know 50 missed calls 10 of them being from our PR guy <laughs> just having to do all these interviews and I was like okay that, that goal might have been bigger than I I thought it was and that was kind of the aha moment uh, that next morning when I saw all the missed calls and missed messages. We had you on the show. We had you on the show that next day to talk about it. It's one of the times that
0: your PR guy said, Yeah, of course he'll be on right away. It'll be great. Yeah, he wasn't
2: mad at you this time. Yeah,
0: no, he wasn't. No, if you want, if you want to, for our viewers and our listeners, if you want to see the goal, just, basically just Google Rick Nash uh, SB goal of the year finalist and you'll find it. You'll see it right away. Another special moment that had to be for you was when they handed you the C the captaincy in Columbus, all that you had done, the raising the prominence and the profile of the organization, how did you find out you were getting to see and, and what was that conversation like? And what did that mean to you?
2: Yeah, it, it, it meant a lot to me. Um, You know, I felt like as we talked about earlier, kind of coming in, to Columbus and be in the face of the franchise and, um, you know, trying to grow the game, which, which I really did take a lot of pride in, yeah. in trying to get the kids excited about Columbus. And now we see kids like Sean Corrale and, um, Jack Roslovic, um, you know, Carson Meyer, three blue jackets right there that grew up kind of in, in the, in the minor hockey that we were trying to, uh, to grow. But, you know, my first couple of years I had, I uh, had uh, Ray Whitney come in and he was the captain and then, um, it was Luke Richardson was the captain. And then Adam foot came in, he was the captain. And those were uh, three pretty good leaders to, uh, to learn from. And I remember when Adam foot got traded back to Colorado, he was our captain. And uh, you know, later that day, um, I believe it was Ken Hitchcock uh, calling me and, and letting me know that, um, you know, we were going to meet tomorrow and and I was going to be the next captain of the Columbus blue jackets. And, it was, it was a dream when, when I think about just being an NHL hockey player and then you put a C on your jersey. A lot of weight comes with it. I was I was yeah. also pretty young at the time too, but um I remember Adam Foote called me and uh you know he he expressed that he got traded and and he just explained to me that this is this is my team now and I have to yeah. lead in, in my own way and I wasn't gonna be like him. You know, Adam Foote was a high intense guy that would come in and call guys out and you know I wasn't like that. I was a, a more of a, a mold of a Steve Eiserman, Once I got to play with him, yeah. and saw how he led, you know, I would try to lead by example. And I would speak up when, when it needed to be, uh, you know, something needed to be said, but the Columbia or being the captain was, was a huge deal. And, and I was lucky that I got to play in the uh, 06 Olympics and, and play with some uh, great leaders over the years and get to know them off the ice too. So I can kind of mold my own form of leadership off, uh, off those guys.
0: You mentioned Jack Roslovic, and I want to follow up on that. He's one of the the great stories of what you did to that Columbus community. I know you're a humble guy, and you hate to talk about that. Can you tell us the story about the Roslovic bobblehead? Uh, was it a bobblehead doll or a hockey figurine? Or Tell us the story about that. And give a little background to, to, from where Roslovic is from so that people understand why it matters so much.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Jack, uh, Jack grew up here in Columbus, and and was obviously a Blue Jacket fan, and got drafted to uh, to the Winnipeg Jets, and then we got him in the uh, Line A and PLD the trade. Uh, yeah. PLD trade. Yeah. And um, you know, J- Jack would pop his head up in the uh, in the offices, and he he came by uh, my office one day, and he said his his mom was cleaning his his childhood room, and he found this McFarland figure of me, and on the figure. He said, or on the uh, on the McFarland figure, said happy uh, happy birthday, Jack. And he's like, you. My mom got this sign for me when I was ten years old, and he's like, I wanted to bring it to you and see if you want it. And I said, yeah, I'll take it, and I'd leave it on my desk now as a conversation piece, um, which is which is pretty cool. And just a quick another story: when I got traded to Boston at the end of my career, uh, they put me in the stall right beside Sean Crawley, and Sean also grew up in uh, in Columbus, and he he looked over to me. And he's like, I don't want this to be weird or anything, but, um, I used to have a poster of you in, in my bedroom. That's awesome. You and Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, I had a little different posters, but, uh, no, so it was, it, it's fun. And, and you know what I, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in where this Columbus, uh, minor hockey organization is now and, and how many kids and, and my son plays in it. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool to see it grow. It's
0: funny. Cause you're, you're telling that story. I geek on the show um last week and and he talks about the fact that in his last year in the NHL he was actually sitting on the bench behind Brendan Morrow who ended up he they were teammates of Brendan Morrow who ended up marrying his daughter your kids are younger than that i'm sure that hasn't happened yet but just wait brother you hang around the the blue jackets organization long enough and people will be hunting around your kids and like then you're going to have to be the dad that's protecting the kids so anyway i thought that was pretty funny with carbo uh you mentioned getting traded uh you had a great run with the jackets you you helped lead them to their first ever playoff appearance and then in the summer of 2012 you get you get traded to the new york rangers which ended up being a good run cuz you ended up being in the stanley cup final you had a career year you mentioned earlier you had a career year forty two goals in, in twenty fifteen. What was that experience like with the Rangers and being in that cup final? Because they, they did their best to to shut you down in terms of offensively because you were the prolific sniper and everybody had to work to shut you down.
2: Yeah, you know what? It was um it was when I signed my eight year deal in two thousand ten with the blue jackets, I, I thought I was gonna, you know, finish off life being a blue jacket and yeah. I but obviously things didn't work out that way and you know now now I'm black, back with the blue jackets and I love it here but I wouldn't change my time in in New York for anything I mean being a ranger getting to play at MSG it was it was incredible um the success was great uh getting to go to the finals was great um but it it was I was 28 I think at the time or 27 whatever it was when I first went to uh first went to New York and, and a lot of those things were new to me. I only played four playoff games from, from my whole career at the yeah. time. And it was tough, you know, it was an adjustment. Um, you know, I wish I had more experience at the time for playoff hockey so I could adjust even better because it was, sometimes it was a struggle in the playoffs and, and I, I can admit that I would have good regular seasons and then come to the playoffs. It was, it was just the next level that I didn't learn as an 18 year old old or as a 20 year old or as a 23 or 24 year old I, I was kind of learning on the go there and we had some success and went to the finals and went to a couple uh, conference finals obviously we didn't get the main goal done of, of winning a stanley cup with uh, which i wish we did but for those six years in new york i i wouldn't change it for anything and um, i think wayne gretzky said it once but he said uh, every hockey player should uh, should see how it feels like to be a, to be a ranger
0: Agreed. Playing in that building, the most famous sports building in the world, uh, certainly interior one. We're in conversation with Rick Nash, six-time NHL All-Star, two-time Olympic gold medalist. This is the Seven Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. Uh, one of the one of the difficult things as a broadcaster to have to watch, as a fan to have to watch, and I'm sure, first and foremost for you, the difficulty of it was the number of head injuries that you had to suffer through. It was it was hard. It was really hard to watch, and really it was. Is the era so many people? You know, Eric Lindros' size career shortened way too quickly because of head injuries, and you way too early. You were just thirty-four years old. You decided I can't do this anymore. This is not good for me for my long-term health. What was that like for you to go through something like that, where you were still scoring, you were still producing, and you knew. I got to take care of myself long-term for the rest of my life here.
2: Yeah. You know what? It was, it was a tough decision and it, it took a little while with, um, you know, a lot of talks with the doctors and with my agent, Joe Resnick, and obviously my family. Um, You know what? One of the most frustrating things were was, was I couldn't play the same way I wanted to play. When I came in the league, I, I would take pucks to the net. I would finish my checks. I would go hard into the corners. And you know, I still feel like at the time I could still play and get stuff done, but I I couldn't be that power forward that that I wanted to be. And and if I wasn't at my very best and I was putting myself at risk from not playing the way that I should be, then I felt like it was uh, it was time. Um, you know, I, I remember playing my last few games in Boston in the playoffs against Tampa and still getting tons of opportunities and scoring goals. Um, and, and then it was my first time as a, a UFA and. And uh, it it was getting all these calls and all this excitement and still being able to make some really good money and sign long term. And at the end of the day, it wasn't fair to me. It wasn't fair to my kids. It wasn't fair to the NHL organizations that were trying to do this when they couldn't get the best me that that I could be. Because of second guessing yourself when you have that many head injuries. So, yeah. you know, looking back, would I still love to be playing? For sure. Uh, you can't simulate the rushes that I felt on the ice um, after hockey. But when I get to go on the ice with my son now or, or I get to throw a ball with him or pick him up and put him on the playground, when who knows how bad the next concussion would have been, I'm at peace with my decision. Um, yeah. As much as I miss the game, my uh, my kids and my family are the most important thing to me.
0: Awesome. How are you feeling now? Is everything okay? Are you back fully?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm back, back fully. Um, you know, I, I, still have a few symptoms here and there, but you know, once you start talking to guys that retire, that have had multiple concussions and you hear some of the things they're going through, um, I, I I'm doing great. Uh, awesome. I have, I have no issues and, um, you know, starting to get back on the ice and we're, we're doing a lot of alumni stuff now and Jody Shelley's uh, growing our uh, alumni program and I think we got 15 guys that live back in Columbus so I'm not as fast as I used to be or my hands <laughs> don't work the way they used to but I love uh, getting back on the ice because the one thing you do miss once you retire is the camaraderie with the guys and, yeah. and that was one of the hardest adjustments too.
0: You still do get to enjoy some of that, though, because you hang out with these guys. You're living now in Columbus. You're working in the organization as a director of player development. Um, you just had your jersey retired, number sixty-one retired to the rafters. You retired, obviously, as the all-time leading scorer and games played in franchise history. What was that? What was that moment like when you saw? the very emotional words that you shared when you saw your number going up to the rafters, what was that like for you?
2: Yeah. The, the, the Jersey retirement was, uh, was definitely up there with the, um, you know, the two gold medals and, and, you know, the draft and, um, you know, going to the Stanley cup finals, it, it's right there to, uh, to think that that number sixty-one will be in the rafters um, forever was was the coolest thing. And now, when I bring my kids to uh, Disney on Ice or we go to a kids <laughs> concert and and they look up, that's probably <laughs> the coolest thing. It is now that my number's up yeah. there. But that night was so special. And we obviously we talked about we had Doug McClain come back, we had uh, Ken Hitchcock, I had um, you know tons of former players and former teammates come. It was a uh, it was a special night. Just to think that um, you know I achieved that with a lot of my teammates and 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 uh, you know former coaches and things. But it, it, it's definitely a highlight in my career. And just to speak on the camaraderie quickly, um, I I am honestly so thankful for uh, for Yarmo and the Blue Jacket organization and
0: Yarmo kick a line in the general manager.
2: Yeah, yeah Yarmo kick a line the general manager and uh, John Davidson our president and Basil McRae our assistant GM. Um, you know they they brought me in to uh, they didn't have to but uh, you know they brought me in and I learned the business for two years as uh, Yarmo's special assistant and then YARMO gave me the uh, the prospects and the development and like you touched on there for a second that has helped so much to have that uh, newfound camaraderie with this hockey ops team than uh than just kind of being retired and trying to find my ways. And it's uh it's very important that the uh the PA and the NHL have these programs that they do have to uh to help these retired players because it's tough.
0: Yeah, you were you were the face of the organization as a player. You elevated its status uh, internationally and and drew attention to a smaller market team that otherwise wouldn't have had that kind of attention. I can't imagine where the Jackets organization would be had you not been a huge part of it for that decade plus that you were there uh, you, you built it in the community from a player perspective. And now the management route, it's interesting because out of all the guys I've had so far on the show, and we've spoken to Zidane Ochara, Guy Carboneau, Paul Henderson, all these guys, only a few of them, Marty Brodeur being one of them have said they were really interested in, in the management thing. And Marty's now making his way up through the organization I get the sense that that is a real goal for you. You have made your way from special advisor to Yarmo to director of player development. Could we one day see Rick Nash as a general manager in the National Hockey League? Is that ultimately a goal you'd like to see attain?
2: For sure. That's a, that's a goal. I don't know if we'll ever see it, <laughs> but um especially with my my last experience with uh, Hockey Canada and uh building that team that we uh we last year the world championships along with shane doan and and doing the assistant uh gm duties and uh you know losing in, in the finals and overtime to uh to finland it was tough but um you know, that that just kind of uh created even more of a, a fire in my belly to uh to work my way up in the uh the management. Now in, in saying that, I, I wanna be one of those guys that kind of uh experiences all the different jobs, you know. Yarmo, well you're
0: still young though, you still got time,
2: right? That's what I mean. I, I wanna Yarmo sent me on a bunch of uh, you know, recruiting trips, um college free agents, uh, you know, CHL free agents, uh did a lot of pro scouting. Um, you know, now i moved on to development. So, you know, I, I wanna take Take a while to learn all the different positions in the hockey ops and, and work my way up as it's uh, as it's uh, deserved, I guess. I don't want to be handed anything. Um, I don't think I deserve to be handed anything. I want to know the business side uh, inside and out. And uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still young. I'm, I'm 38. I got a lot of time and just trying to grow with experiences like the Hockey Canada ones. And and hopefully someday kind of work my way to the top. Listen, if you have the work ethic and
0: management that you had in coming into the game, I I got to see the kind of stuff, the extra effort. It didn't just come naturally for you. You worked your tail off to accomplish what you did. Uh, Listen, it's been so great catching up with you again, Rick. I, I got nothing but the best memories of the stuff that you have accomplished and wish you nothing but the best as you take this next step now in management and the next level of your career that you want to hit. Good luck with that. I appreciate you doing this, man.
2: Hey, anytime. I, I feel like my career and uh, will always be tied to yours, and in some sort of way, it always comes up whenever uh, you know I tell those draft stories. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's always fun to talk to you, and um, I've always respected and, and appreciated everything you've done. Um, you know, talking about me and, and just for the game of hockey. So, you know, it's, it's it's great to catch up. Two-time Olympic gold medalist, six-time NHL All-Star, and the director
0: of player development and future general manager in Columbus. Who knows? That was Rick Nash. The Overtime Podcast is proudly presented by 7-Eleven. Before leaving the rink, order your favorite Slurpee, fresh, 100% premium Arabica coffee, hot from the oven, pizza and wings, a pint of ice cream, or even a carton of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread from the 7Now app. And Team 7-Eleven will have your order ready for pickup 24-7. Hey, if you missed any parts of the show, don't worry. Visit our website at OvertimePodcast.ca, where you can both listen and subscribe to future shows. 7-Eleven's Overtime Podcast can be found on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Gino Retta saying so long, hockey fans, and thanks for joining us on the 7-Eleven Overtime
1: Podcast. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now Delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large, hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, Groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7.